which September call-ups might be difference makers. I'll ask Eric Longenhagen about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 1st. It's show number 33 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. In part one, we'll discuss how to figure out which organizations improved between the draft and the deadline, and why teams are pushing their young prospects so aggressively. Then in part two, Eric and I will talk about which prospects might and might not be called up in September and which ones might be difference makers, and he'll have his prospect boons and banes for 2024. We'll have our weekly fantasy player review with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com looking at American League hitters including Trey Cabbage and Everson Pereira and pitchers Dylan Cease and Trevor May. Then we'll head over to the National League with hitter news including Brandon Crawford, Mitch Hanniger, and Ronnie Mauricio, and pitchers Jordan Wicks and Seth Lugo. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Yankees outfield call-up Jason Dominguez. And in extra innings, I'll be asking you to listen to how it's gone for Carlos Santana. It's another Big Friday Full Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? How many MLB teams has Carlos Santana played for in his career? Oye, como va? We gotta talk some baseball. Well, Oye, como va? means listen how it goes. So listen to how it's gone for Carlos Santana. He's been in the big leagues for 14 years now, playing with six teams, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Kansas City, Seattle, Pittsburgh, and now Milwaukee. And I'll have more to say about how it's gone for Carlos Santana later in my extra innings commentary near the end of the show. So let's get this show on the road. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. Eric, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate being on. I've talked with quite a few prospects analysts in the fantasy baseball environment, and some of them were prospects people first, and that got them into fantasy baseball, and others were fantasy baseball players first who then got into prospects. What was your path to the combination of prospects and fantasy? I come from from baseball first. I mean, definitely as a younger person, and I still play fantasy sports, but mostly just fantasy football, uh, and am writing about prospects, not really from a fantasy perspective at all, and like try to fixate mostly on a uh, you know real world baseball impact. Um, but you know, I I was originally uh, a, a sport loving teenager. I became the youngest game day intern at the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, you know, brand new ballpark in Allentown, Pennsylvania, when uh, they first became a franchise in, in 2008. Uh, and between, you know, being 18 and now going on 17 years later, I've just like worked in baseball in some menial 
or like a budding capacity uh, from like that job to uh, like baseball info solutions uh, to freelance writing, um, including for ESPN.com for a while, doing draft coverage mostly with Keith Law. Then I moved to Arizona uh, in 2014, did a little bit more freelancing before landing the full-time prospect uh, analyst job at Fangraphs in 2016, which I've been doing ever since. So that's a full-time gig. Yep. Yep. That's good. It's like 16 year old me has his dream job. And so, yeah, it's very, a very feel very fortunate and um, to have, you know, be, it'll be, I'll be full-time now for almost, yeah, seven years. Um, I think next extended spring training in May will be like, yeah, my seventh year anniversary as the, as the full-time prospect writer at the site. Did you move to Arizona because of that connection to the prospects and so many of them passed through there in spring training for, and of course at uh, Arizona Fall League? Yeah, no doubt. That was a, a big, big part of why I moved from Eastern Pennsylvania to Arizona was I wanted a job in baseball and felt like it was going to be more feasible and just be a better quality of life if I could uh, have one here in, in Arizona, like just sleep in my bed more nights than is typical for someone who has a full-time job in baseball. And part of it at the time was like, you know, I got married uh, and my wife at the time is a teacher and Pennsylvania was just not a good place for, for her as to, in terms of work prospects either. Like public education in, in Pennsylvania is very good. Uh, but like from a work standpoint for her, there just like weren't art teacher openings. And in Arizona, because it's like not great to be a public educator here, uh, there were plenty of jobs. And so you know, we had like a mutual, uh, you know, worked out for both of us in, in that way um, when we were when we were kids and, and you know, trying to leave home basically. But it's, uh, of course, a lovely place to live, notwithstanding some of the uh, real brutal heat that you've been getting of late. But let's talk about your uh, Fangraphs work. Uh, you had a Fangraphs article a little while back about how the player movement between the entry draft and the trade deadline affected your Fangraphs top 100 prospects list. And you said, and I quote, we can use how Fangraphs farm system rankings are calculated to more fully understand how successful rebuilds are born. What did that mean? How does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, the the article was about how the um, the tr the trade deadline and the draft impacted the farm system rankings. I'm still trying to figure that out, and it is really a difficult thing to wrangle because the White Sox had quote unquote a good trade deadline as far as their farm system is concerned. The quality of their farm system, based on the way. I've decided to do it at Fangraphs buoyed pretty significantly, but that front office has now been fired or rather like the head of the front office has been fired. And so the person who kicked off the White Sox rebuild is someone who Jerry Reinsdorf didn't think he wanted to run his team anymore. And so it's like curious that, you know, you're like just dealing with stuff like this when it comes time to trying to understand how, yeah, like a rebuild is born. Does this have to be a two-pronged thing? Can you rebuild solely through the draft? Does any executive have that kind of job security where you can do that over a long period of time? And Or do you almost have to have like a pro-side rebuild where even if you are, you know, 
the Rockies right now say, like, can you really sign Chris Bryant? Like, shouldn't you just be offing? You know, your team is so bad. Shouldn't like Ryan McMahon be traded while he is most valuable for multiple pieces? Like, or can you really just draft, draft, draft and get there once Ryan McMahon is like approaching free agency? Fingers crossed. Like, what is the right answer to some of that stuff? And um, we've only been tracking farm system values and the rankings that stem there from in this way since 2019. And the movement, the ability to shape the way prospect analysis and rankings and values and all that stuff gets spit out on the website accelerated in a new way via this tool that you know I'm working on all the time, which is the board uh, up on the site. And so to answer your question, it is like, I don't know yet. It is definitely a, we are in the process of trying to understand this and there are so many variables that it, it is a very difficult question to answer. Well, you've been looking at this for a long time, and including in this particular instance specifically, but we have some examples in our own experience just watching baseball from the outside, not even as close as you are, but we've, we've seen, for instance, Baltimore has engaged in a rebuild that has paid off spectacularly really this year, but other teams have engaged in rebuilds that have been less successful or not at all successful. And I wonder what, there's a lot of moving parts in all of that. Are they drafting poorly? Are they developing poorly or, 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 or well in the case of teams that are succeeding? And what's the, what's the magic maneuvering? What's the mechanics of getting a rebuild going and having it pan out? Yeah, that's, I think you're like dead on. You're right in this pocket where it's like, it is this melange of things where it is talent identification. And then the development part is so, so, so important. And I really think certainly I have uh, come to understand this much better, even just during like the second half of this full-time tenure with Fangraphs. And I think you know, as is the, the case with most things, the, you know, the teams themselves are discovering these things at a rate that is uh, much faster than it trickles into the public consciousness. You know, things like vertical approach angle and that kind of stuff. Like these are things teams have known about, certainly like the smarter, for, more forward thinking teams for like a while. Uh, and like it takes a, it takes a while before that bleeds into our consciousness on on this side uh, and then even longer before we can disseminate it to our readers or listeners or whatever and uh, i do think that player development like you can just see the money being reallocated from scouting to player development um that's a that's a, a big big deal and so the, the development part of it is so hard to capture when you're doing prospect work because you go from scouting to predicting. And if you're playing fantasy, you want to be predicting. As soon as the Rockies draft Chase Dollander, you don't have to, you know, he comes off your dynasty board. But for me, I can't do that. Like I have to evaluate Chase Dollander in good faith in some sort of vacuum that doesn't really factor in the fact that the Rockies have had a hard time developing and sustaining the success of their guys that John, you know, and some of it is just related to course field or whatever, 
but like you know i sh- i can't just lower what i the grade i have on that guy because the rockies drafted him uh and nor can i raise it because you know river ryan becomes goes from the padres who haven't been good at this really to the dodgers who are and it's like ah do i want it now i want to you know juice this guy but you know, all you can do is like write a picks the click article basically and say like, Hey, here are the guys who I'm guessing will get better. Um, but yeah, it is like, there's so many things and then it's like down to the individual play, you know, player to player, coach to coach, how competent any one of us, them, you know, are at at our jobs is just going to be highly variable. It is. And when you mentioned uh, Chris Bryant earlier and whether the Rockies really need to be finding guys like that and retaining guys like that versus trading them away. I, I thought of um, the NBA and uh, an analyst that I listen to on a regular podcast. I'm not a real big NBA fan, but I like hearing guys who know what they're talking about talk about stuff. And he said the one place you don't want to be in in talent development in the NBA, and I think this probably extends out to other sports, including baseball, is you don't want to be in the middle. You want to have a competitive team or you want to have a complete bust because if you have a complete bust, you fall to the bottom and you get the high draft picks, which allows you to to step on the gas as far as acquiring the talent you're going to need down the road. You still have to develop it, as you said, of course. And I wonder about a team like you mentioned the Dodgers. They seem to have the the figured out all aspects of it, and that allows them to stay on top. I think we could say the same about Tampa, and I think we could say the same about a couple of other teams that seem to have managed how to do that. And I'm going back to the Baltimore example, Eric. Were they just extraordinarily lucky to get all of those all of those prospects? They have so many prospects that. You really couldn't bring them all up, and Cincinnati ran into that problem earlier this year, and they just started jamming. Right. They had 19 different shortstops, and they're sticking them. Hey, you can go sell popcorn. You can play center field. You know, <laughs> uh, everything out there. So it seems like we get back to this idea that it's a multi-pronged thing, and I'm wondering, it would baseball teams be better based on the draft and based on trading free agents and getting uh, and getting back some draft picks or draft or minor league players? If you were Colorado, would you be better just really throwing in the towel, getting rid of all your veterans and going really, really bad like Oakland is in the hopes that you pick up enough good draft picks and good young players that you can turn it around? I think certainly there's some truth to that. I think that this, the way the relationship like on the spectrum works with player quality in the draft is not necessarily as stark as with like the NBA or like drafting the right quarterback in football. Um, Because like in baseball, as we've seen with the angels, one or two players can only do so much for your team. Like baseball is so much more a sport about depth when it comes to roster building. Uh, If you can have, you know, like look at the Padres and the Padres, you know, this season, it's just, they've been very unlucky, right? Like 0 and 11 and extra inning games. They've got like a plus 60 run differential as we're sitting here talking. They're like 70 runs better than the Diamondbacks. Uh, and there's seven games back of them. Like some of this is just rotten luck for them, but their lineup is all dude, you know, famous godlike guys. And like, they're not, you know, they're not 
even though they've been unlucky, they're like not that good. You know, they're not the best team in the NL and have been this unlucky. Like they're just quite good and have been unlucky enough to maybe not make the playoffs, right? Um, and so I don't, you know, I think in Baltimore's case, Rutschman is so transcendent. And, you know, that's that's a real like franchise altering guy. And uh Gunner but Gunnar Henderson wasn't like a top five pick. Gunnar Henderson was, you know, down like by the sandwich round. Um Grayson Rodriguez was in the middle of the first round. Uh Jackson Holiday isn't like a good shortstop defender yet. Like he's awesome and he's, you know, my number one guy as we're sitting here right now. But he's not really anything until he's actually doing it. He's pardon me, he's not as good a not a, as good a defensive player as Gunnar Henderson is right now. And so, like, you know, I think it's got to be a combination of both. As with most things, balance is an, uh, is an important thing. But you see what a lot of these teams who are in the middle, what they end up doing, except for a like precious few of them, is nothing. Like Cleveland, Cleveland just doesn't do anything. Cleveland's stance on neutrality is uh like we're in the middle of the pack let's let Cole Calhoun who hasn't played first base since like 2011 when he was in high a let's just make him the first baseman on our major league baseball team and then you have like Toronto and Arizona who are like let's trade Dalton Varsho and Gabriel Moreno and so like the way teams approach being in that place of neutrality, the Diamondbacks are let's trade these prospects for Starling Marte and let's trade Jazz Chisholm for Zach Gallen. And the and Cleveland is just like, ah, <laughs> what if we just didn't do anything? And a lot of the teams approach it that way. Uh the Paul Seawall trade is another one where they're just sort of like, ah, we're kind of like here, let's trade Andrew Chafin for Peter Strezelecki, who we can control for another half decade and also get Paul Seawald back. Like that's neutral. And like the fact that some teams are willing to be more transactional in that when they're on that part of the competitive spectrum and other teams seem like they just don't want to do anything unless their like pro model tells them that this is like a cherry deal that they're, you know, and I can see why Cleveland's gun shy when you traded Junior Caminero for Tobias Myers or whatever. Like you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to do that again. Um, but like, yeah, like at some point, you don't want to just be get a ticket to the dance. Like you want to be prom king, right? And so, like, I don't see how at some point you do have to push chips in. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that like any one top five baseball pick, especially because of how long it takes some of them to like actually get ready. Uh, I don't know that like bottoming out in baseball is necessarily the right thing. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. And I always like to ask prospect experts about the value of eyes on scouting in prospect evaluation, because it's always felt to me like seeing a prospect a handful of times might be likelier to create a bias than to add any real insight. You might catch a guy on a day when he's playing unusually well for his talent level or unusually poorly for his talent level, and that might bias you when you go to look at the longer 
bigger picture of all of his stats and performance. How do you assess the value and the importance of seeing a prospect with your own eyes versus scouting by stats as it were? Yeah, I think um, there are like three layers to it. There's the, all I care about is the spreadsheet. And then the quality of the spreadsheet is going to vary, right? And there are a whole kinds of, you know, that's its own conversation. Then you have on the other end of the spectrum is I saw this player in person. I'm on the backfield. The, you know, the sound of guys spikes grinding the sidewalk is all around me as they walk past me. And I can see which of them are like built like professional athletes and move like professional athletes and which ones don't. And then the middle is video where the tools to analyze people properly via video are growing and growing and growing, including, you know, just like having minor league games on the MLB TV on like your fire stick is like, you know, a monolith touching moment for people who care about minor league baseball where you're just elevating your ability to consume this in a profound way still. Um, and like, you know, we allocate what used to be my travel budget, like a piece of it to a like video package that lets me do some of that stuff more readily. I think it is so important to watch the guys play baseball no one in their right mind is going to watch a minor league series and go, oh, Unieski Betancourt went eight for 16 while I was here with six home runs. He's the best player here. Like no one is just going to do that. For sure, you can be biased on some things like the defensive part of it. Anything that you can't see the whole picture but require – like a thing that requires visual evaluation of sorts like – mostly them playing defense and running the bases and but sometimes it is just like LED La Cruz is striking out at a 31 32% clip in the minors and that should scare the shit out of us and when you watch him do literally anything it is unbelievable and you know from that the way his stuff lines up compared to the other guys is like scary and also, holy cow, look at that guy's body and how far he hits the ball when he connects. Like, surely he'll probably be something. But it's important to contextualize the data with the physical scouting report and vice versa, I think. Yeah, it seems like it's a circle that everybody in your line of work has to square at some point because there's no magic bullet in any of it. You have to you have to combine certain things. I just worry that uh, from the point of view of somebody who's not – in the business. So a guy like me, I see first pitch Arizona games, three or four of them in a year, see quite a bit of video, but I'm always a little concerned that I might be injecting some bias because I only see these guys a few times, not a hundred times. I think that's why people like you are really important because you become the eyeballs for all the rest of us who don't have the time to do it, frankly. That's part of why it takes so goddamn long for me to write 30 prospect lists you know at one point i thought corbin carroll would be a better defensive center fielder than alec thomas and 
understanding that what gets put into that takes more time than I was giving it and a certain being wrong from seeing a limited sample of things in person changed as you know video and the way I was able to source information and video now is at a different level than it was when I first started doing this. And that's been helpful, but it takes time to do the sourcing part of it. You're only getting, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle of sorts where you know, you're pulling data from over here, you're pulling data from over there, the way they are quantifying maximum exit velocity might be different than this team because they're, you know, they're lopping off a subset of them at the very top just to wipe away any outliers. Like there's all kinds of different dynamics and it's just like takes a long time to do it in a way that you know you're not blowing smoke. Some of it does involve just watching them play and understanding yourself and when you should be allowed to feel comfortable with what you are seeing. Patrick Bailey is a specific example where I had, I didn't even see this myself. I had scouts coming out of the Northwest League just last year who were like, this guy sucks. He doesn't care. He is not playing hard. This is not going well. And I wrote that and slid him on the prospect lists. And now I love watching him do literally everything. Yeah, you know, he's just so skilled and incredible. And it was dumb. And I was wrong. And this was, you know, only 12 months ago. And already I feel dumb and wrong. And so Well, you have to you have to rely on the information that you get. And that's a problem all of us have in in all yes. of our player evaluations, like I said, I can't look at them all firsthand. So I have to rely on what I hear from a bunch of different sources and then try to figure it out. You said when you were analyzing how the teams did at the deadline that the big movers were the Pirates, the Nationals, the Twins, the Rangers, and the Tigers. And these were teams that added value to their organizations by, uh, I guess, acquiring prospects. What did they do in a general sense to facilitate those kind of improvements? So that was the group that moved up the most because of the draft. And in those teams' cases, they just had top five picks. Like the Pirates got Paul Skeens. And the Nationals got Dylan Cruz. And so that was that was the bulk of it is like the way Craig Edwards, who used to write for our site and now works for the Players Union, uh, when he took a historical look at the way prospects were performing, uh, it ended up the distribution of, of value was very top-heavy. And so uh, the biggest movers at the draft were the guys who got those ready-made, you know, college guys in Wyatt Langford, Paul Skeens, and Dylan Cruz, and the two monster upside, middle of the order, you know, impact high school bats and Max Clark and Walker Jenkins. Those are the five guys who I had evaluated at the very top of the draft. And so in that narrow window of just the draft, those five teams, the Pirates, Nationals, Twins, Rangers, and Tigers are the ones that had the biggest leap in in farm system uh, value. Uh, not necessarily ranking because like the way the teams are spaced based on the quality of the farm systems, like you might have, you might add like a $10 million type of player to your farm system, but the team in front of you was $12 million ahead of you. And so like your rank doesn't change at all. Um, 
that's why like looking at the collective value of like what you know in theory everyone would get on like an open market rather than you know a labor uh diluting system like the draft um would you know would ordinarily you know facilitate their bonus to be but uh, like paul skeens is paul skeens on the open market gets you know like i don't know 60 million <laughs> something like that right he hasn't proven anything like scott kingery got a bunch of money and it didn't work out like teams are willing to do stuff like this if you just threw dylan cruz on the open market i bet he gets like 80 million um not you know eight <laughs> so uh but yeah like um i think it's any time that you're looking at the draft it's tough because you really want to try to evaluate the way the teams performed relative to how you would expect them to perform based on the picks that they had uh, but then again it's like some of that is scouting and some of that is player development you said all of these five teams got really excellent players because they had high-level picks. But we know that not all those high-level picks are going to pan out, uh, just from our own experience. So has anybody figured out which teams are good at it, or is there a general success rate in the top five or top ten picks in the Major League Draft as far as the ones that actually come through and, and end up being useful players? That's a good question. For sure, people have done draft related studies at some point you're evaluating how the laundry is doing rather than any individual people because there is often so much turnover let's just take these top five teams for instance ben charrington's tenure as an executive is long enough now that we could look at the draft classes he has overseen and have some idea of whether or not he's good at it or how good at it he is but because that is true for so few high level executives it is hard to compare his performance to like a big enough sample to really get an understanding of how he compares to his peers and then you also have the is the president of baseball ops always the guy making the pick even at the very top of the draft is it the scouting director? Is it the GM? Like the title of the people who ultimately make the call and how collaborative it is, like that's going to vary team to team in such a way that we really can't know. And so like, you know, the Yankees, Brian Cashman's been there forever. Donnie Rowland has been there for forever, right? Like we can have some understanding of like how those guys are doing but not not a lot of them you would hear stuff about disagreement in the rooms like rick hahn and and kenny williams both have decision making power in that organization and might not agree about what they want to do with their first round pick and so whoever ends up winning that argument and for whatever reason it shouldn't be on the other one's track record he was dissenting in the room. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David with Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. And Eric, uh, Rob Gordon and I touched on this subject last week, but I'm curious about your thoughts on why we seem to have had a surge of prospects being promoted very quickly this year from A and high A into double A at young ages and with very limited experience. We we talked about San Diego catcher Ethan Salas. He's only 17 years old. Uh, San Diego outfielder Dylan Cruz and Washington starter Paul Skeens, you mentioned them already. They're older, but they had extremely limited exposure at the lower levels. What's your analysis of why teams are being so aggressive in pushing these younger, less experienced players all the way into double A? Yeah, there, some of it is because the minor leagues have been truncated. Like your minor league roster limitations on, you know, in the domestic minors have really compacted the entirety of the minor leagues. And so someone like Ethan Salas, not only has it compacted the minor leagues from top to bottom, but it has altered, especially at the bottom of full season minor league baseball, the type and quality of player that is is playing there now. Not having multiple short season affiliates means that like, the players who were going to be like spending spring in extended spring training on the complex and then going to the New York Penn League or going to the Appalachian or Northwest or Pioneer Leagues, uh, they are now just going to low A. And so when you think someone like Ethan Salas is what Ethan Salas might be, Getting him out of there faster makes a lot of sense. I don't know if like you, promoting him to double A after nine games at high A makes any sense. Like sometimes the Padres are like, uh, they read to me like the kids in a clockwork orange <laughs> driving the car <laughs> with like some of this stuff. Like, hey, maybe CJ Abrams was promoted a little too quickly for his own good. Um, but there are also lots of people in baseball who believe they can either do it or they can't. If this guy is going to be an elite major league catcher in Ethan Salas's case, no matter what challenge you throw at him, he is going to be able to succeed. And if you look at a lot of the elite, like, and I'm talking elite, I'm not talking about like Leody Tavares, you know, I'm talking about like <laughs> Wander Franco and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Buster Posey, like they just hit and hit and hit, and they never do anything but hit at an elite level the entire time, right? Even Chase Utley sucked for a minute, you know? He's not elite. He's just a Hall of Famer. But like I'm talking like elite, and if you think that Ethan Salas is that guy, then it doesn't matter what you do with him like he's just going to be that guy and so to some extent to find out whether or not that is what you have pushing them makes sense some of it feels like it's being done for its own sake in the case of dylan cruz and paul Skeens, what i said before about like the lower levels of full season baseball uh applies in those cases in a in a significant way because both of those dudes just got like in Dylan Cruz's case, Dylan Cruz just got done laying waste to, to the SEC for three years. So his experience level 
is already such that like he's not learning anything in Fredericksburg, you know, like get him to Harrisburg. Uh, so that stuff makes sense to me. But I, again, like some of this was accelerated because of COVID and some of it was accelerated because Major League Baseball knew uh, that they were going to lose this class action lawsuit and that minor leaguers were going to eventually have to be paid a living wage. And so they preemptively cut the number of roster spots at in the minor leagues so to offset some of those costs, right? Like they don't think investing in a guy who spends a year on the complex and then an extended in the Pio and then an extended in the Northwest League and then goes to full season ball when he's 19 years old for the first time. Like they're just like, nah, we're done with that. Um, and so some of that is like causing these guys to be rocketed through the minor leagues. And that was all accelerated by COVID. And, you know, they were able to do, you know, some of this stuff, uh, in that moment. And that happened, you know, with streaming and all sorts of other things too, right. And, uh, parts of our lives, remote work, all kinds of things. Um, and this is like one of the symptoms of it in baseball now is that you see, uh, Ethan Salas promoted to double A. He's a, he should be at a prom and he's, he's, uh, you know, at San Antonio, but, um, but yeah, like in that kid's case, he is, that's a different guy. Um, and so we'll see how that one goes, but yeah, it is sort of bizarre. And I've had to recalibrate my sense of it because it is so new relative to what I was used to the 10 previous years. I've cared about this stuff. If rapid promotion is a trend, Eric, how can fantasy managers take advantage? Understanding what's happening on the big league rosters is every bit as important for fantasy players, I think, as uh, actually evaluating the guys. If you're the Yankees and you have to have a good season next year, getting Jason Dominguez's rookie growing pains out of the way in September so that he has a better chance of hitting the ground running after having like been exposed to big league pitching for a month already next season. That makes a lot of sense. There are enough good players that come up and are going to be duds that, you know, even guys who are going to be good over time, like Gunnar Henderson's, you know, initial exposure to major league baseball was only okay. Right. Like, and he's been very, very good and whether or not and how quickly someone might adjusted big league pitching is is just going to be variable but in terms of like taking a shot on a guy who's not up yet reading the tea leaves of roster movement at the big league level is every bit as important as understanding player quality in the minors and who started the year at high a and is already at triple a that rate of promotion uh especially for big league teams for whom it makes sense to to get a look at these guys in september when I was starting out in fantasy baseball and got involved in, in leagues and formats that rewarded understanding where the prospects were, a big thing that we all were taught to think of was age to level. It was a fairly rigid system of age to level. And if a guy was a year ahead or two years ahead, that seems to be going by the wayside the way that they're rocketing these guys up. Age to level, is it still a worthwhile thing to consider? I think especially for hitters, it is still very, very important. But for pitchers, I really don't care. Pitchers' stuff can develop and be augmented so quickly now through technology and player development 
that how a guy looks at any given time might rapidly change over the course of an off season or just, you know, they're shut down for a couple of weeks to do this or that thing with a, with a new grip or mechanical change. And, and like pitchers can really change very rapidly. I care about roster flexibility. And in fantasy, what you should care about probably is like a lack of roster flexibility. Anyone who's more likely to be kept on the big league roster because they're out of options or the A's need Luis Medina to like start because they're the A's or whatever, like that type of stuff is much more important for fantasy. If your roster flexibility is running out, you are losing a sort of value. Uh, you're walking like a tightrope between being a starter and being a reliever and your option years are running dry. Well, guess what, buddy? Like you're moving to the bullpen. This is part of my theory as to why there are so few Latin American starters in the major leagues, because if you are a damn good 20 year old Latin American pitcher, the team is going to be more likely to protect you as soon as they have to. And now your option clock starts at 20 years old. And so you only have between when that starts and when your options run out to solve any developmental issue you might, you might have and be a starting pitcher. And so when you look around baseball and like a large portion of the Latino starters are guys who signed older, you know, you see much, many, many more teams signing older pitchers in Latin America and spreading no high dollar bonuses either. Really. It's like, let's give a bunch of 19 year olds 10 K each and just apply sound player development to them. And so uh, for pitchers, I, I'm looking for time to develop without having to downshift into a lesser type of role and stuff quality. That makes sense. When you were talking about the Latino pitchers and if they're signed early, it just seems like that's a market failure in a way there's, of course, there's a lot of money in the bird dogs and the scouts over there who identify these young players for the major league teams who get, then go over there and, and try to sign them at those young ages. But when you think about the, just the difficulty of pitching and the physical demands of it, there's a certain absence of physical maturity that will come along when the guy gets a little bit older, fills into his frame as it were, but think there's also mental there's also um, emotional maturity. There's also cultural maturity. I mean, it's, you're 17 years old and you're in a country where you don't speak the language and a lot of people, frankly, don't like you because of they perceive you as some kind of uh, uh, moral threat to the fabric of society, those kinds of things. It's got to be very tough. And, uh, and I think that maybe the smart teams are going to have to figure out something like you said, which is find a bunch of 20-year-olds, give them 25 grand a piece and, and hope that one out of 15 lands for you to your point about emotional maturity and it is like it takes like a lot for me to write hey this kid is kind of a shit you know what i mean like because that is happening you know their frontal cortex isn't fully developed until they're 25 and here they are you're questioning whether to give them two million dollars or not when they're 17 like that's you know it is wild and also i'm 35 now I'm twice as old as some of these guys. I don't understand what they're going through really. And the social media piece of it is also a thing that's like having an impact on some of these guys when they're so young and what that's doing to them. Like, I don't really know. And I often wonder if the way we 
talk and write about them and the fervor on social media, especially around them has an impact on how they pan out. You know, like if John ja Morant doesn't have a, a, as bright a spotlight shining on him, is he better off like as a dude? Maybe. Um, and so like, I've become like more hyper aware of like how I might be polluting in a way that is impacting how any of these guys turns out and like what their well-being is like. And so much of it is toothpaste out of the tube just on social media, which is part of why I've stopped participating in that space. Um, but, um, but yeah, like it can be messy, but it is also like, uh, it is like a systemic thing in this case. Yeah. Where you're, and you're oddly selecting for the best ones because that is who you're more likely to want to protect from the rule five draft prematurely are the guys who have emerged as the best ones who uh, you're worried about losing. Well, Eric, this has been very interesting so far. Let's take a break. I'll go to some news and then we'll finish our discussion. Sounds good. I'm excited. Eric Longenhagen is the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs, and he'll be back a little later to talk about which prospects might and might not be called up in September, and he'll have some boons and banes. Coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some items of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have extensive roster forecasting analysis, like Playing Time Tomorrow. This week, analyst Brian Rudd is reviewing five players in the American League Central including Minnesota outfielder Byron Buxton, White Sox second baseman Elvis Andrews, and a bunch of catchers. And in the lineup outlook batting order coverage, analyst Greg Jewett looks at DJ LeMayhew's resurgence since he climbed to the top of the Yankees batting order, a career-opening hit streak by Angels call-up first baseman Nolan Chanul, and a potential stolen base source in Boston center fielder shortstop Sedan Raffaella. Roster forecasting, another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday of a holiday weekend for us Americans, PD. Uh, and for us Canadians as well, everybody believes in the uh, holiday celebrating labor and increasingly organized labor. So uh, it's all going to be fun this weekend. And I don't know about the weather where you are, but up here it's going to be over 30 for the whole week and 30 Celsius, which is like 85 Fahrenheit. So they're leaving the pool open in my condo complex. Uh, my kids are coming over. It's going to be a great weekend. Yeah, same. I think we might be a couple of days behind you with that uh that heat wave, I think it's more coming to us, you know, maybe actually on the holiday and into next week. But yeah, sounds good. I intend to find a pool this weekend as well and uh, probably fire up the barbecue. Oh, definitely. The barbie will be going. That's for sure. Hey, listen, before we get started on the players, I was just curious what you thought about the, the big waivers tide that ran over right a day or two ago when the angels waived a bunch of guys that were at the end of their contract. So they could avoid paying them the few hundred thousand that was left, but Cleveland and Cincinnati really jumped on the opportunity. Uh, Cleveland got Lucas Giolito, who went to Los Angeles earlier this year in a, in a deadline trade, and 
relievers Matt Moore and Ronaldo Lopez, who also went in that Giolito trade. And the Reds pick up Hunter Renfro, and they picked up Harrison Bader, who was waived by the Yankees. What's going on with all this waivers business, and how does it look for the future? Yeah, it's really interesting. I enjoyed this, I think, maybe a little more than I should have, uh, just because it surfaces so many like game theory parallels to the fantasy world that we've been, you know, we've all seen variations of this in our leagues and, you know, in actual MLB, it's a relatively new phenomenon, but, you know, we've lived through this either with, you know, waiver priority order is obviously a concept we all understand in the fantasy world. And, you know, even the actions of the angels, you know, (laughs) I know there were, you know, business reasons for it. There's the financial savings you were talking about. And then there's the, um, the draft pick benefit they get if they get back under the luxury tax threshold. But this, you know, wh- who among us who's, who's been playing fantasy for years has not seen the owner who, you know, throws a temper tantrum in late August because things aren't going his way and decides to cut everybody. I mean, you know, Artie Moreno is like the, you know, is that is that guy we all hate in our fantasy leagues except on the MLB scale. So, yeah, I kind of I, I kind of enjoyed MLB living with, uh, you know, some of the nonsense we've seen in our leagues for, you know, since, since our games were invented, right? Yeah, and I'm not 100% clear on why the uh, Guardians and the Reds got all these players. I don't understand really how the waiver system works in Major League Baseball. I guess I should bone up on that. But what I was thinking as a possible big effect for fantasy baseball in the future was we had, did have a couple of guys cross over from the American League to the National, from the Angels to Cincinnati, and in only leagues, not that anybody plays only leagues anymore except maybe you and me and a handful of zealots like us, but in only leagues, Hunter Renfro is a piece. I mean, he's a guy that you'd like to have, and when he comes over, that usually puts him into the waiver pool in the National League only league or in the fab pool. But is this something we need to start thinking about as far as hoarding a little bit of fab for the end of the season after the deadline? Because now that somebody's done it, Major League Baseball is a, is known for imitation being the sincerest form of flattery. Maybe next year there's going to be 40 guys who get put on waivers to save money, get under the luxury threshold or whatever the reason is, and they could all be zooming back and forth across leagues. And even, even beyond that, just changing teams might affect their viability as fantasy assets. Uh, Hunter Renfro goes to a smaller park where he might hit more home runs on a really good team that scores a lot of runs. This might be a real boon for Hunter Renfro. Yeah, it's all, these are all good points and exactly things we should be thinking about. You know, we've, in those only leagues, we often think of, you know, the first um, fab run after the trade deadline is the bonanza and everybody's laying every dollar they have on the table bidding for those guys, right? And this dynamic becomes one of maybe a couple of reasons where we should not quite be that aggressive because there's, you know, this is a new avenue to cross league player movement past the trade deadline. The other thing we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks that kind of ties into this discussion is this late call up of prospects of rookies uh, who can retain rookie eligibility and rookie of the year eligibility for 2024 if they stay under the rookie the rookie eligibility threshold for this year, which is why we've seen uh, you know, the spike of uh, you know call ups once we got under that thirty five games left mark or whatever it was in the last uh, in the last couple of weeks. So compared to 
couple of years, couple of years back under the under the old rule system, you know, it's unusual to see this much talent coming into our fab pools in any league, only or mixed league, uh, you know, this late in the season. And yeah, that probably does affect how we think about budgeting our fab. And all of us sitting here with you know five, six, seven percent of our fab budget left with all of these things dropping into our lap every week this week. Maybe you're thinking like, I wish I had a little bit more. There's some really top end talent has, has entered the pool across both leagues. And I think this is going to be something that is really going to cause a lot of us to rethink and recalibrate how we, how we manage a lot of what we do. Now, the, the downside of these guys coming in, uh, on September 1st with this, with the roster expansion is that you only get a month of work out of them. Whereas if you spend your fab, you know, back at the deadline, you get two months worth. If you, if you do your fab at the start of the year, when they first hit the arbitration deadline and the free agency deadlines and so forth. So you've got all of these points during the season when there's going to be an influx of talent. And I guess the question is, how do you manage your fab to hit at least some of the talent in all three of those thresholds? Because I know it's only a month, but you know, I'm five stolen bases from picking up five points in stolen bases in, in tout. And I wouldn't mind getting a, a grab of some of these guys who can run. Yeah. hundred percent. And then the other thing to think about is the rules aren't static, right? Um, I don't know whether what happened this week is enough to force MLB to make a change before, as you say, everyone gets into the imitation game here. But there's been some chatter online from a number of sources that maybe this is maybe this week's action is something that forces the pushing back of the trade deadline to August 15th or you know maybe even later than that. Um, and to exactly the point you're making, if MLB does decide to do that, then that affects the dynamic of holding your money for the trade deadline anyway, because now you're talking about only getting six weeks instead of eight of the guys you pick up on July 31st, or maybe less than that. So right. yes, there's, uh, you know, the, what we're seeing of the exploiting of the current rules probably causes us to adjust our thinking, but then we also have to have the radar up for uh, MLB seeing what happened and deciding that they want to do something different, which will again, affect the game theory aspect of it. But, you know, I'm kind of fine with all this. I, I, I appreciate more wrinkles and different things, different things happening and the the season not being as cookie cutter and some, some new, some new challenges and new, uh, new things to wrap my head around. Uh, you know, it's keeping things fresh, right? Anything that gets more talent into the pool is okay by me because in past years, you know, we sit at the, at the, uh, trading deadline and nothing happens. And then we get, we used to get to that September call up and there's 40 guys who'd get called up per team. Kind of, it seemed like a whole extra team would get called up, but none of the good prospects were included. Now they can only add two. And at least the teams that are in contention seem to be pretty aggressive about getting guys on their rosters who they think can help and are probably going to play. And that makes a big difference too. Yeah. hundred percent with only two call-ups per team, like you say, both from the contending and the non-contending aspects, there are the guys who get called up are usually the guys who they either there's an opportunity need on the on the club or it's a prospect they want to get a particularly good look at for the rest of the season. So there's you know, we get to skip the step of looking at the 10 call-ups per team and trying to divine which two are the ones who are going to get an opportunity. They're telling us which two are going to get the opportunity. So there and, and therefore we can assess, as you said, of the of the list of guys who gets called up, who might be the one who gets us the five stolen bases in September that we need, that kind of thing. 
And then when we look ahead to next year's drafts, all of a sudden we have a kind of a bit of a crystal ball into the kind of prospects we might want to stash if our league rules allow us to grab uh, minor leaguers, presuming these guys get sent back uh, between now and opening day next year, between opening of spring training next year. They're back on the farm, but we might think, you know, hey, you know, here's a guy who the team thought well enough of to bring him up in the heat of a pennant race, the one of the two guys that they brought up, and especially if they played him. And then he goes back. Well, now all of a sudden that guy looks a lot more interesting than a blind dart throw like I made this year uh, with Kyle Manzardo, just expecting at some point he was going to get called up. And uh, unfortunately for me, he wasn't. But if we'd have had the same kind of uh, head look, uh, head start look at what went on in the previous year, we might have a much clearer idea of how we want to handle that prospect stashing aspect of draft. Yeah, and in fact, I've your point is excellent from the um you know how the offseason evolves and our draft prep for next year point of view. I get it, my mindset was a little bit more short term and a little more kind of how the HQ and baseball forecaster sausage gets made because the other thing I really love about this is I am probably about 2 or 3 weeks away from actually getting deep into the process of settling the list of players who get player boxes in the baseball forecaster and this early infusion of talent and getting a chance to figure out which of these two call-ups per team are playing is fabulous for me from taking out some of the guesswork of, you know, who should get a player box, who is this team interested in, you know, who, who has a better outlook for 2024 so we can make sure they get covered in the book uh, because that process, um, is always kind of a pain in my neck in September. I'm always doing a lot of uh, educated guesswork and consulting our team analysts. And I love, as you said, the earlier infusion of more talent. And, you know, anytime I can take a, uh, a, a Ronnie Mauricio who got called up this week and put him into the book and, you know, with a stable size of major league work instead of, you know, the 32nd backup catcher in MLB, you know, that's a good thing. It makes, it makes the book a better product. So I am happy that MLB selfishly is doing something that sort of benefits our own offseason processes. And I imagine for all of you, uh, projections guys, having a little bit of a major league sample is going to help the accuracy of your minor league equivalents, which is what you would have had to rely on. Otherwise, if you have an idea that this guy was a, you know, a 280, 420 type of slash line based on his slightly higher slash line in the minors, you might actually get 30 games worth of major league data on some of these top prospects and have a better idea of whether the inferences that you draw from minor league experience can be buttressed by the actual major league experience that you see and whether, you know, A equals B as you expected. Exactly. For the projections aspect, more data is always better. And then the other thing I like sort of on the opposite side of the coin from the projections aspect is inevitably when we get into draft season this winter, drafters are going to overreact to whatever happens in those 30 games in the majors, whether or not it's whether or not they're any good, right? There will, there will be guys getting drafted 10 rounds too high because they hit 300 in that 25 game sample size. And there will be guys who fall to the 37th round because they hit a buck 75, even though they lit up triple a, right? So that's just more stuff that we'll be able to exploit at the draft table. And I love that too. So like I said, I, I kind of don't have any downsides here. This is all, you know, (laughs) this is, this is all more stuff getting sprinkled into the off-season gumbo and I'm here for it. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is something to look forward to. I, I can just see there's going to be one guy who steals seven bases. There's going to be oh, one 100%. guy who hits nine home runs. You know, 
amongst this little group, there's going to be somebody who does something almost all along the line. I wouldn't be surprised to see some pitcher come up and get thrown into the bullpen because he's a top arm, but they don't want to start him. And all of a sudden he's David Price with Tampa back in the day and he picks up a bunch of uh, saves in the playoffs or at the end of the season. This could go a lot of ways and for my money, most of them are good. We should get going on our actual player news for the week in the speculator column at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looked at some possible September experiments that could pay off for fantasy managers. And among the American League hitters who caught Ryan's eye based on Jock Thompson's American League West playing time tomorrow coverage was Angels outfielder Trey Cabbage. Yeah, uh, Ryan, as always, did a nice job here. He was clearly thinking along the same lines that you and I were just talking about because he broke up these September sort of hitters to watch uh, based on category impact, sort of for just the same reasons that you and I you and I touched on. Trey Cabbage was a guy he picked up for kind of a power and speed blend. Uh, you know, he has 27 home runs and 35 stolen bases at AAA Salt Lake this year, which is pretty cool. Uh, but... Let's and of course, given what we were talking about with the exodus from the Angels, there's a path to playing time too because Mike Trout's out. They just released Renfro and Grichuk. There's plenty of outfield to go around. Mickey Moniak can't play all three outfield spots there, so the playing time is attractive there. Of course, there's a downside, which is that for all the power and speed that Cabbage has flashed in the minors, those things can only happen when he puts the bat on the ball, which has happened not nearly often enough. Um, So struck out 17 times in 35 plate appearances on an earlier call up this year. Uh, You don't need a calculator to tell you that that's a 50% strikeout rate. (laughs) It's also a 50% contact rate. (laughs) <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah, and, hey, newsflash, neither one of those is acceptable. No, no that's exactly right. Uh, but I think what Ryan's point is, if you need bags or bombs, Cabbage could be a, a guy you want to pick. Yeah, 100%. If you need bags or bombs, Cabbage looks interesting. If you're ahead of three other teams by a tenth of a point in batting average, less so. Yeah, less so. Exactly right. And I want to thank you for resisting the urge to make a pun on trout and cabbage and all that kind of thing. So let us move on to another of Ryan's spec picks for September, Yankees outfielder Everson Pereira. I see what you did there, PD, or more accurately, I heard it. Um, yeah, Chris Olsen on the beat with the Yankees here. Uh, he he actually called this move a week or so ago that uh, this might be the uh, – corresponding move for some of the Yankees uh, roster shuffling and sort of pivot to looking ahead to next year, which is something the Yankees haven't done since uh, 1992 or so that the, uh, you know, September was, as I always like to say, bring your kids to see our kids season. Uh, So Pereira got called up on the 22nd uh, and Anthony Volpe's had a decent year for the Yankees, but the rest of the guys, the rest of the sort of kiddie core the Yankees were counting on this year um, hasn't really developed. So we'll have to see what happens with Pereira. Uh, the, you know, when Ryan was looking at this, he saw, you know, the, the thing he was primarily excited about with Pereira was the potential for playing time that he's probably going to get plugged into the lineup every day. Uh, he does offer some of the same power speed blend as we were talking about with cabbage earlier Pereira's had 18 home runs and 11 stolen bases in the minors this year, uh, off to a slow start with the Yankees, 35 plate appearances hitting a buck 29 with no power or on base. So, I mean, we've seen plenty of guys have a bad 30 or 40 plate appearances and figure it out. So that's not necessarily disqualifying, but hopefully he'll show some signs of life sooner than later, 14 strikeouts and 35 plate appearances, 
sort of suggests that he's overmatched them at the moment. So we'll see if he can make some of those adjustments. The Yankees are, to Ryan's point, sticking with him. Uh, he's started every game since he was called up in left field. They even hit him clean up once, and maybe after a couple of days decided he wasn't quite ready for that. So he's dropped down to seventh or so. But as long as he's still in the lineup, uh, there's the possibility of some counting stats to come along with it. And again, the Yankees are in look-forward mode, so they should be somewhat patient. On the other hand, and this is getting into narrative country, which is something we generally try to avoid at Baseball HQ, but I can see a situation where if he gets 70 plate appearances in and he's still 390 OPS, that the Yankees might say, you know what, we're going to destroy this kid's confidence if he just keeps going up there and, and hacking away and not getting any results and, and, you know, just for his own sake, out of mercy, take him out of the lineup. That's definitely possible. 35 bad plate appearances. Like I said, we've seen that before and we've seen guys shake that off. Uh, but as that number continues to grow, if there are not signs of life, then uh, the Yankees will probably th start thinking about whether they're actually doing him a service or not. But we're not there yet. Pereira's call-up was also covered in the Baseball HQ daily call-ups report. What did the uh, HQ scouts say about uh, Pereira? Yeah, always good to look at the daily call-up report to get the, uh, the 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 baseline expectation for your prospect uh, arrivals here. Like we said, there have been a lot of them lately. Uh, in Pereira's case, we rated him an 8C prospect. Uh, he had been hitting 312 with a 937 OPS in AAA. Like we said, there were some stolen bases there too. Uh, Career-wise, look taking sort of the longer view, his main problem coming up through, through the system had been health. But this is now the second year in a row that he's been able to stay healthy play full-time and display the skills that, you know, put him on prospect lists. His kind of calling card skill is he hits the ball hard. Average exit velocity in the minors was 93 miles per hour. That's 99th percentile, a very healthy 12% barrel rate. Uh, but, you know, theme alert here, uh, the bad news is when he does not put the, you know, when he does not barrel the ball, he kind of doesn't hit it as all at all. Uh, swings a lot outside the strike zone. Uh, huge swing and miss rates. His whiff rate was 36%, which is just, um, you know, on the borderline of being disqualifying. Uh, you know, it, he doesn't do that throughout the at-bat. It suggests that maybe he's got a good or better, shall we say, two-strike approach because even though he swings and misses a ton, the strikeouts have, hadn't been terrible in the minors. Although, like we said, uh, that has been sort of a problem in the early stages of his call-up. Uh, so far, That's it seems like MLB pitchers are exploiting that. Uh, but, 2020 upside, which would make him a very good fantasy player if he can get there. Before we leave this column for now, I saw that Ryan had a chart of all the team's remaining games as of Monday this week with the combined winning percentages of, of all their opponents, and it was color-coded so you could see which teams have the most games left and which teams have the easiest schedules left. And that could be really handy, I thought, uh, when you're trying to figure out which guys you want to start for the rest of the uh, campaign or which guys you want to add to your roster. Yeah, hundred percent. It was a great idea from Ryan. Uh, you know, we do a lot of these kind of charts on a week to week basis in our sort of weekly planning tools. You know, Ryan includes a week, a weekly chart with, uh, you know, lefty and righty, uh, opposing starting pitchers and their starting pitcher ratings. He has that every week in the market pulse column. But at this time of year, kind of zooming out a couple of thousand feet and looking at the chart for the remainder of the season, you know, with a sort of a month-long lens is a, is a handy thing. I know I've already 
uh, pulled that up a couple of times to go back and look at it. Uh, and I would imagine I will be doing that throughout this weekend as well. Um, you know, as far as what the chart shows, everybody, every team in baseball has, ha as of Monday when he did this, had 30 to 33 games left. And, you know, that's a 10% difference between teams, right? So that can, that can matter in a lot of leagues. We've talked, you know, as we keep talking about, you know, there are some small category man um, situations where, in your league, a couple of extra games, 10 extra at-bats over three games could be a big difference. Uh, unfortunately, the teams with 33 games, you know, the most playing time left, are the Braves and Dodgers. So not much help there in two lenses. One, those guys, the good guys on those teams are already rostered. They're some of the best players in baseball. Like, yeah, I'd love 33 games of Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. How about you? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'll take it. The other, the other aspect is those teams, you know, with uh, pretty solid division leads, you would imagine that there's going to be a bunch of uh, fracturing of the playing time, as we, especially as we get into the latter half of the month. But uh, that's something that we can micromanage a little bit more when we get there. Moving along to American League pitchers in this week's Facts and Flukes performance validation, analyst Jeffrey Tomich looked at five American leaguers, including a pitcher who has been a real disappointment after a breakout 2022. He finished second place in the Cy Young finish. We're talking, of course, about right-hander Dylan Cease of the White Sox. Uh, looking under the hood of this 4.91 ERA, what has Jeff seen in Cease's skills and what hope that he can regain last year's form over the final month of this year? Yeah, Jeff didn't pull any punches in this analysis. Cease, uh, especially relative to preseason expectations, ha has been a flop. Um, and it's a combination of his raw skills have deteriorated from deteriorated, excuse me, from last year. Uh, luck has not been on his side either. Uh, first, with the skills, you know, obviously we think of Cease as an elite strikeout pitcher. He's striking out fewer batters this year, 27% uh, this year, 30% last year. Uh, and the underlying metrics on that say, if anything, it could have been even worse. A 10, 10% fewer swing strikes. Um, he's throwing more first pitch strikes, which is good, but doesn't necessarily help with the strikeout rate. Um, he's also given up a lot more hard contact, a 24% increase in line drive rate, which is just alarming. Uh, he, you know, the walks haven't really been a problem, but it's really that he's traded strikeouts for hard contact, which is you know, among the worst trades you can make as a pitcher. Um, that said, as I alluded to, you know, luck sort of still a factor here as well. A um, little bit of an overcorrection in that last year, 26% hit rate was favorable and was sort of helping push his ERA below his expected ERA. That swung way the other way this year. He's got a 33% hit rate. But before we write that off to luck, as we said, you know, if he's given up a lot of line drives, a lot of hard hit balls, that's not necessarily luck. Big hitters are going to, big league hitters are going to, you know, pay, make you pay, uh, you know, if you're giving up hard contact a lot. And that seems to be what Cease is doing. Uh, there's also, he's also not stranding runners at the same clip he was last year, which was probably unsustainable and probably the most expected correction we've seen here. But again, without the, you know, strikeouts are a big factor in how you can outpitch your expected strand rate. And with his strikeout rate down this year, that's even more of a reason to expect that correction. So overall, you know, last year his skills were good and he outpitched them. And this year the skills have gotten worse and that's pushed the ERA north. And then the luck has gone in the same direction and pushed the ERA 
even further than the skills would suggest, but he is a long way from, you know, net net a long way from the pitcher he was what was a year ago. Yeah, when I looked at it, uh, something that jumped out at me was the strand rate sometimes oversimplified, not at Baseball HQ so much, but in other places where they say this guy's strand rate went from 80% to 60% and it's all luck. Well, 80% is probably more luck than anything, but 60% might not be because of all of the things that go into the strand rate. Namely, if you're giving up lots of hits, lots of guys are going to get on and lots of guys are going to score. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind. Uh, As we head down the stretch, Ray, one category that is still usually volatile in some leagues is saves. And Jock Thompson says in his playing time tomorrow coverage of the American League West that fantasy managers might want to look for some help in an unlikely place, the Oakland slash Las Vegas A's. Yeah, I'm going to confess that I didn't even notice this until Jock wrote it up for me. So uh, good job by him to call call this out here. Uh, And he's, he's talking about Trevor May, who has taken over the A's closer role and been that's, you know, I, I had noticed that part, but I had not fully absorbed how effective he's been. He's got 15 saves since the beginning of June with a very respectable 277 ERA and a buck 27 whip. Uh, skills wise, he's kind of living on the Rangers edge for the season. It's only a 4% K minus BB, which is disqualifying other than, <laughs> to, to put it bluntly. Uh, it's gotten a little, I'll use air quotes that you can't see as a listener, but better in July and August. It's up to 7%, but that's still just still not good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so needless to say, these are not closer level skills and yet he's closing games. And I think to your point, PD, when we're looking at a sh- short four week sample size, the most important thing is he has the job. And I think if he's, you know, it, it's not an unreasonable play to, gamble on him continuing to dance on the razor's edge for another four weeks before the regression monster comes for him. So, and you know, the other thing about this that makes a little bit of sense is that May's problem historically has more been the home run ball. And he's been avoiding that uh, during this successful run as a closer. I think mostly we have Oakland Coliseum to thank for that. Uh, You know, probably, you know, I I haven't watched them that much, but I'm just imagining a lot of fly balls on the warning track that are coming down just on the right side of the fence. And again, for four more weeks, maybe he can get away with that. Uh, I would not endorse him looking ahead to 2024, whether he's in Oakland or anywhere else. But for the next four weeks, as you say, PD, if you need five saves, there are worse places to look. Let's go over to the National League. We'll start in San Francisco where shortstop Brandon Crawford has been a fixture more or less for the last 10 years or so, but he's coming up on the final year of this current contract. Dan Marcus covers the Giants in playing time tomorrow, doing the roster forecasting there. What's going on in the shortstop battle by the Bay? Yeah, it's really starting to look like this is near the end of the line for Crawford. He even spoke earlier in the season about possibly retiring and if he spoke about it earlier in the season and was thinking about it in terms of well let me see if I can stay productive and healthy and contribute to the team the answers are kind of coming back in the negative uh he's got career worst marks in 
contact rate, expected batting average, BPV. It's his worst home. It's his worst power season in some time. I mean, we're not that far removed when he was, you know, in a lead power hitting shortstop. And there's just no evidence that that's in play anymore. Uh, he's on the IL now, and it's several times this year he's been been on the IL. So obviously that's contributing to the uh, poor, poor performance, but. Uh, it's just a bad picture at the moment. I saw that he was talking about retirement, so that usually gives you a clue that the the writing may be on the wall. But uh, one player's misfortune, Ray, always ends up being another player's opportunity. How does Dan say the Giants are managing without Crawford and what their future might be at shortstop with Crawford out of the picture? Yeah, it seems pretty clear what the where the Giants will turn here. They have you know, several internal options. So the transition should be pretty seamless, even if we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. The shortstop of the future, of course, is Marco Luciano, who got called up very briefly back in July uh, before he got sidelined by a hamstring injury back in AAA. Uh, but we we will probably see him again before the end of the season up with the big club. Uh, his, his short sample debut in San Francisco wasn't great. He was striking out just under 30% of the time, even before he got promoted. And then it was a 42% strikeout rate against an 8% walk rate in San Francisco. So, you know, not unlike what we've talked about with some of the, some of these young kids earlier, the initial transition was bumpy and it's a question of when he can settle down. Uh, and the, obviously the uh, injuries have been, a you know, both recently and longer term been a concern in Luciano's progression through the minors. So we're going to have to see, how that goes. The Giants, of course, are still in the wildcard race, though, so they can't just plug in Luciano at shortstop, say, the way the Yankees could with uh, Pereira and just roll with them. So they've got, you know, they're trying to stay in that wildcard race. So they brought in Paul DeJong for, uh, you know, for the short term since Toronto released him. He's actually started every game at shortstop, uh, you know, in the last eight or nine days since they picked him up. They've also got Thyro Estrada, who can bounce back and forth between second base and shortstop. Casey Schmidt has played some time at, some at short as well, although he was the one who kind of got displaced by DeJong. So the Giants have options here for the short term of the wildcard race. It's probably DeJong with some help from Estrada and Schmidt, but you would think that by next year, it's going to be Luciano time. San Francisco did get a bit of welcome news. They activated a couple of outfielders, Mitch Hanniger and Mike Kostremski. Uh, Jake Crumpler covers the Giants for playing time today, and on two separate days he had these stories. How does the activations of these two outfielders affect San Francisco's lineup as they make that playoff run that you mentioned? Yeah, more pieces for them, for Gabe Kapler to deploy on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it's been a long time since we saw Hanniger. That was about two and a half months he was out with a broken arm. Uh, Yaz was only out a month this time with the hamstring, although I think, um, if I remember correctly, that's got to be his third time on the IL this year with that same hamstring. So uh, they both go back into sort of the, like I said, the Gabe Kapler, you know, machine and we'll see what give him more options to burp out lineups on a daily basis uh in terms of who loses the playing time Luis Matos had been playing a fair amount in the outfield and he slides down the depth chart now they've got a lot of options there Haniger, Yastrzemski, Matos is still there Jock Peterson is probably the third lead outfielder with Hamilton with Haniger and Yaz 
Uh, Wade Meckler has been up for a week or two, and he's probably the fourth outfielder right now. Austin Slater makes a nice platoon partner for Peterson. Um, let's not forget Michael Conforto is also on the IL. So some of these guys coming back just assume some of those Conforto at bats. AJ Pollock's still here. Uh, part-time catcher Blake Sable appears in the outfield from time to time as well. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of options. Uh, Kapler is going to move the playing time around day to day as they try to uh, stay ahead in that wild card scrum. That seems to me to be a bit of a source of worry for fantasy managers when you talk about the fact that the team, the manager are really willing and they really seem to be leaning into this idea of every day, a different lineup like Tampa used to with Joe Madden, or that was the, that was the, uh, sort of caricature of what Joe Madden was doing. But when you get a team that seems to be really willing to play matchups, to move guys around from position to position, really uh, rely on guys who have multiple position eligibility like Tyro Estrada and other guys. Does this cause a diminishment of value for everybody involved? And I guess what I'm asking is, do, do we have any level of interest in Mitch Hanniger or any of these guys based on the knowledge that chances are they're going to be not playing really full time? It seems like from Baseball HQ's depth charts that the maximum is 70% playing time for the rest of the month. That's not great. No, I think that's exactly right, especially in the context we were talking about earlier with Ryan's playing time chart of remaining games, et cetera. It'll be very frustrating to try to bleed some value out of Yaz or Hanniger or any of these guys and see them sitting two, three times a week. And I think that probably is the expectation, especially given, you know, Yaz, as I said, is that, you know, I think three times on the IL with a hamstring, you would think he's not going to play five, six days in a row just because of that, let alone the rest of the Giants philosophy of lineup construction. Same probably true for Hanniger. So yeah, if you're considering, you know, whether you want to keep one of these guys on your roster for the next month, thinking that they might only get 2021 out of those 30 games versus somebody who's going to get 27, 28, even if their skills are not quite as good, I'm probably going to chase the playing time in most of those cases. Yep. Playing time is, uh, is the key to winning a lot of leagues. That's for sure. In New York, the Mets are recalling second baseman, Ronnie Mauricio from AAA. And, uh, I think we saw that coming, but it was good to see Phil Hertz's name back on the National League East beat the, with this report on playing time today. I haven't seen his name for a while. What's the take on Phil Hertz and what's the take on Ronnie Mauricio? Yeah, Phil's doing well. He's, uh, uh as is somewhat well, well documented from our forum denizens and others who know him from first pitch, Arizona. He is a Hawaii resident. So he's, uh, obviously dealt with some challenges out there, but he's, uh, doing well and on the beat, as you say, uh, so in his coverage of Mauricio, you know, another significant prospect arrival. He was 29th on our Baseball HQ midseason top 50 list, uh, primarily a second baseman, although he's been playing all over the uh, field down in AAA. Uh, this year, 527 plate appearances down there, 23 home runs, 24 stolen bases, and 860 OPS. So that's another, you know, fill the box score, fill the, fill the five categories kind of possibility where Phil's given him 65% of the playing time with the Mets right now over the last month, mostly at second base, also in the outfield. Uh, and Phil, as we often do, 
kind of nipped and tucked that 65% playing time from about half a, half a dozen other guys to make room for Mauricio. Uh, but again, given where the Mets are in the standings, uh, there's every reason for them to leave Mauricio in the lineup until and unless he flames out so badly that they actually think they're doing damage, but he should get a long look. Is it a long look though? We just saw, talked about guys in San Francisco <laughs> getting 70% playing within time. the context of the next four weeks at the long look, right? I guess. Yeah. But if uh, the Mets have 30 games left and he's only playing in 65 of them, that means he's not going to play in 11 uh, yeah, of them fair. now. So fair. It, it seems like if, before you uh, anoint Ronnie Mauricio as the savior for your season, keep in mind that he may only play two thirds of the games that are coming up. Of course, maybe not, you know, it could be that the Mets are going to leave him out there. Or he goes eight for 10 to start and plays all 30 games. Plays all 30 games. Yeah, exactly. Over to the pitchers. We talked last week, Ray, about the rotation in Chicago, and you had checked with our scouting director, Chris Blessing, to ask about any possible minor league call-ups who could help the uh, Cubs rotation. He said, look out for left-hander Jordan Wicks. And lo and behold, not a few days later, Wicks was called up indeed and made his big league debut in a start on Saturday at Pittsburgh, which is a pretty nice way to start. Yeah, he went five innings, gave up three base runners, one earned run, I, I believe was a solo home run by Cabrian Hayes, got the win. That, that, that's a good debut. I'm sure he uh, went home happy that night and celebrated with his family, right? And I bet a lot of fantasy managers wish they had that win because it's typically a fairly tight category. What was the scouts take uh, in the daily call-ups report? Another good breakdown here that gives the uh, gives the context of what we're looking at here set reported as a solid back-end rotation piece sort of a command first guy rather than a stuff guy he was a first round pick in 2021 out of kansas state uh kind of a smooth rise, smooth rise through the minors since then you know being a college draftee he started in double a was promoted in june this year to uh triple a along the so a combined a 355 era 117 whip in 91 innings this year, 27% strikeout rate versus 9% walk rate. So that's pretty serviceable. Um, as far as his arsenal, four-seamer, change-up, slider, curve. It's not overpowering stuff. The fastball's 90 to 94 range, although he can punch it up a little bit. But it's really the change-up that's its calling card. Uh, you know, He's got really good mechanics, really clean, simple motion that does a really good job of maintaining the arm speed on that change-up so it looks like the fastball. Uh, he repeats that really well, and that's really how he's going to get guys out. So that's kind of the arsenal you get, which sounds like innings eater is probably a little more pejorative than we want to, but without the big stuff, but with, uh, you know, consistent delivery, et cetera, I, I think that's why you talk about him as sort of a back-end guy without necessarily the, uh, the overpowering repertoire that would have us rate him higher than that. Nothing wrong with innings eaters. I mean, if their innings are, you know, six ERA, then it's bad, but the strikeout rate is pretty interesting to me, Ray, because 27% for a guy who doesn't have overpowering stuff indicates maybe something going on with his makeup, maybe something going on with his, you know, baseball acumen or his, his idea of what he's doing out there, setting pitchers up the Greg Maddox model. Although Greg Maddox actually threw much harder than people give him credit for. But, you know, if, if you have a, a guy who's got a fairly high strikeout rate without overpowering stuff that makes him intriguing, but at the same time, it's exactly the kind of stuff or the kind of situation that doesn't 
often work in the major leagues. You get by fooling guys in the minor leagues with your guile or whatever you want to call it. There's an anecdote. I can't remember where I read it. It might have been in Ball 4 where a guy was talking about some guy he knew in Florida who had a cup of coffee in the big leagues and was pitching in the Florida Industrial League. And he said, he's really getting guys out down there. He's a really smart pitcher. And the guy that was talking to him says, yeah, he's not trying to sneak a fastball past Henry Aaron in the Florida Industrial League. <laughs> so That's exactly right. So uh, what do you think of this guy, uh, high strikeout rate without overpowering stuff? It's kind of a two-sided coin. Yeah, and I, that's probably the thing we're going to end up watching most closely as he makes the transition to the majors is, is it a case where that changeup is so good that it's going to fool guys in the majors just as much as it has in the minors? And as a result, he'll have a smooth transition and his arsenal will just easily translate? Or is it kind of as you suggest that the 27% strikeout rate is – inflated by guys who just can't hit a change up in triple a and that's why they're in triple a and haven't gotten called up yet and when he gets up to the majors either the major league hitters will lay off the change up and make him throw the rather average fastball and attack that or is it going to be that you know like i said that the change up is just so good that it can uh he can he can survive the same way he's gotten here that's that's kind of where the rubber meets the road here and I think that's where the analysis is going to look, as you suggest. And finally, in San Diego, right-hander Seth Lugo has had a somewhat surprising 21 starts in 21 games this season, mostly a career reliever, of course, and giving both the Padres and fantasy managers some useful innings in his outings. HQ analyst Brant Chesser took a look at Lugo in this week's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation coverage of the National League. Uh, what did Brant Chesser have to say about Seth Lugo's 2023 season as a full-time starter? Yeah, this is interesting to me. Um, just from, uh, you know, as you said earlier, we kind of shy away from the narrative stuff, but I, I this one was almost irresistible to me because Lugo rather publicly in his you know fairly long career with the Mets, like always wanted to start. And the Mets were like, no, no, we need you in the bullpen slash. We don't really think you're a starter. And he finally left the Mets this year, finds found somebody in San Diego who was willing to give him that, that opportunity to start. And guess what? He's basically shoving, <laughs> which is just, you know, as interesting as it is from, from a fantasy perspective, it's also an indictment of the Mets is what I'm getting at. And I don't miss an opportunity to indict the Mets. So, um, but, uh, you know, on the good side, looking at the skills, they've held up well in this transition from being a reliever to a starter. Uh, 128 BPV, which is 28% better than league average. Uh, his K minus BB is 18%, which is also above average for a starter. He's maintained the good walk rate that he had in the bullpen. Uh, the strikeout rate carrying over is really the more surprising part of it. Um, and all that's out to a 367 ERA, which is really good, You know, supported by a 372 expected ERA. That's our that's our metric, our HQX ERA. XFIP agrees he's got 359 there. So results right in line with the skills. So we got five wins, which might be a little bit unlucky. Our expected win says he deserves more like nine. Um, but that might be something of a pitch count limitation. He's been more of a generally 85, 90 pitch guy, which means he's 
you know, leaving a little bit earlier and entrusting the bullpen to hold the wins for him. And that's just sort of a higher tightrope to walk. And he, that, that part of it hasn't worked out well. But overall, if you threw a bucket Seth Lugo in your auction in the preseason, you've got nothing to complain about. Yeah, I wanted to look him up on the PQS charts, and I'm going to do that a little later on today because I'm curious how many times he's not got a win because he didn't get five innings. It sounds like he's thrown a lot of strikes, so it could be one of those situations where, you know, he's not getting a lot of pitches, but he is getting enough outs to, to qualify. I'm curious what the story is there. Interesting to look at Seth Lugo. Always interesting to talk with Ray Murphy. Thanks for helping us out, Ray, and we'll talk with you again in a week. Excellent. Thanks, PD. Enjoy the long weekend. Ray Murphy is co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Eric Longenhagen. But first, let me highlight some more great resources at the Baseball HQ site right now. In this week's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Greg Pyron aims his analyst microscope at Atlanta outfielder Michael Harris II, Reds pitcher Graham Ashcraft, and eternal sneaky value first baseman Carlos Santana, who's also the subject of my extra innings comment later in this week's pod. And in this week's Big Hurt Injuries Review, analyst Matt Cederholm looks at injuries befalling Cincinnati infielder Matt McLean, Toronto third baseman Matt Chapman, Texas right-hander Nate Eovaldi, San Diego right-hander Hugh Darvish, and Boston shortstop third baseman Pablo Reyes. The Facts and Flukes Performance Validation and the Big Hurt Injuries Review, two more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. Eric, welcome back to part two. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really enjoying the ability to go as deep as we are on some of these topics. I would like to talk about some possibilities for September call-ups and how all of that works. But before we get to individual players, I have a question about minor league equivalents. So we've been chasing this particular grail for a long time. In your opinion, what's the current level of accuracy in the major league equivalents that we use to create the projections that we use to figure out which prospects we might want to sign and that the big league teams want to sign? Yeah, gosh, that's a good question. I do not use minor major league equivalencies uh, in my analysis. That's not to say I'm not looking at data, but I'm not looking at uh, other than, than zips. I, I am not looking at MLEs. Um, I think there are definitely some that are better than others. You want ones that are controlling for league and for park park is so, so, so important. Um, you know, as offline as I try to be anymore, there are still times when I am exposed to like the internet zeitgeist of prospect hype. And people are really getting tricked a lot of the time by just the surface level triple slash lines, it seems. Park factors are such a, a hugely important part of how any of these guys is performing. Uh, it is especially true of like the Rockies affiliates top to bottom. When you can be tricked by a guy year over year, affiliate after affiliate. And so I encourage everyone to find Matt Eddy's park minor league park factor analysis. 
uh, at the end of every season, he does it. It is hugely valuable. Um, and yeah, I think like any MLEs need to be controlling for that. Um, and then also like the thing that has changed recently is what we talked about in the last segment where the shape of the minor leagues has changed. What it means to be at any individual level, except for maybe AAA anymore, has changed. And as such, we have a very short window for which that has been true. And it it just like it isn't anyone's fault, but it just makes it, you know, impossible to have an apples to apples historical context for what has gone on for really only the last two seasons. Right. Any sort of MLEs that are taking into account, you know, that are like have a sense of what player quality at any given level it is, that goes, you know, deeper than, you know, it's looking past five years ago, like it is just not capturing at all what the case is anymore for any of this stuff. Um, I think uh, some of what proves uh, this to be correct is like some of this is just binary, right? Like the guys who come over from Korea and Japan, the level of play in Japan is so high I would say it's better than our triple A ball. And I would say that with, with, uh, with a a lot of confidence, (laughs) not only do they have like, they have like a layer of studs over there and you're going to start to see some of them come over here, uh, again, like this off season with like Yoshinobu Yamamoto and stuff. Uh, and like Munitaka Murakami, were he a prospect over here this past off season would have just been in that top three mix with Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson. Like that's how good that guy is. Right. Um, and anyway, but like, uh, some of those guys come over here and they are just bad. Right. Some of those guys come over here and they are Yoshi Sutsugo and they just don't do anything. Even though over there they are, you know, among the best power hitters in the league. Um, and so like the fact that there, there's like, that's a very stable, my point is that's a stable statistical environment, the NPB, right? Uh, and theoretically, if you sh- should be able to do MLEs anywhere, it should be using NPB. You're not having, you know, what the quality of competition is at a level and like how old you are. Like it is less of a thing to like, it is just a self-contained thing, right? Um, you're not like cutting off sample sizes because the guy's promoted in the middle of the year and having to like adjust for that, you know, like it is just self-contained in one thing. Um, and you have like physically mature adults who come over when they're 27 and stuff, but still the leap in stuff quality between what's happening in Japan, especially from a fastball velocity standpoint to what is going on over here is sufficient enough that it just exposes guys who were just always going to be a binary. No, there's not like a degree of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like Yoshi Sutsugo was the MLE maybe thought he would be like, not a great player, but like fairly good or whatever, but he is just a, no, he can't hit these fastballs. Like, no, um, and that is just true in the minors as well, where the major league stuff is so good that you just maybe won't be able to deal with it. No matter how well Monte Harrison plays at AAA, 
he cannot recognize a major league slider. It just doesn't matter. So like, you know, do, there. I think that like that sort of weakens the case for MLEs as a big part of what you're considering uh, in the prospect space, because there are just so many examples where the answer is a binary no, rather than this like gray area, um, that MLEs tend to bucket a lot of guys into. Well, earlier, Eric, you talked about how the major leagues have structured the minor leagues because of in response to certain stimuli. And one of the things I've been thinking about is they also changed in the CBA, the roster rules for September, which used to be 15 added guys on September 1st. Now it's two added guys. And I believe one of them has to be a batter and one a pitcher, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that. But how has that adjustment, how do you think it's going to affect the number of prospects that we see uh, coming up the, later this week? Yeah, um, that's a good question. The so much of it is going to be about individual cases, be it the team's situation or the players. It has an impact on next year's prospect lists. Like we see fewer guys who come up. Not that the guys who come up in September would often get enough playing time to, you know, uh, expunge rookie eligibility or anything like that. But the roster rules have changed in such a way that, like, if you're promoted in September, all of those days count against your rookie eligibility for next year. Whereas, uh, under previous CBAs, your September days did not. Uh, and so like guys end up graduating and falling off of prospect lists, even if they're just like up in September, but not playing a bunch. Um, obviously with just two spots, you know, the likelihood that you will play is greater because it's, you know, the playing time isn't spread across 20 pitchers <laughs> anymore. Uh, like the old September call-up days where it was just like, yeah, like, you get a third of an inning and you get a third of an inning. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, anyone who's coming up is coming up to, you know, there, there might be some subjective, like get your feet wet young man and be in a big league clubhouse and catch bullpens from the big league staff. You're going to be in the mix for a job next spring, uh, or whatever the, the case may be. Um, but because the roster sizes are somewhat limited and anyone who isn't already on a 40 man roster, who you're adding at this stage, they're going to be up and they have to stay up or else you're optioning them. Um, and then obviously like the minor league season will end at some point here, but the AAA season goes deep enough to keep guys hot in the event of injury. Um, that like, that's always going to be a, a place that they can, they can be, uh, but teams I think are going to be pretty cautious about, uh, things like roster flexibility, flexibility and service time clocks, uh, like they usually are. And so I think teams will be relatively conservative and only promote players where there's like next to no downside uh, for their promotion. Well, let's take a look at some of the prospects that I've been seeing mentioned at various websites and other sources. Uh, we'll just look at some hitters. Uh, position by position, the only catcher I've seen being mentioned as a possible call-up is the Yankees' Austin Wells. What do you think? Likely or not likely? Wells, I think they would have to add to the 40 man. Clearly the Yankees with, you know, they're indicating their posture with like the Bader waiver where, you know, they're releasing guys, they're clearing space. I suppose I could see that. Yeah. Being a plausible thing for him to come up and play and not be option. So they're not burning an option, but I do think they would have to, it's, it would cost them a 40 man spot. So, um, 
watch for that. But yeah, it makes sense. Like, get a look at what you have. I am not a huge Austin Wells fan. I have him evaluated like a luxury backup, like a bat first backup, you know, maybe part time type guy, timeshare catcher. I do not see him as like this, like impact primary power hitting catcher, but I do think that there's a chance that he will be given some opportunity here down the stretch. Among first basemen, uh, Cleveland acquired Kyle Manzardo at the deadline from Tampa in a in a deal, I've seen he's going to be called up. I've seen he's not going to be called up. Where do you land on Kyle Manzardo? This is another one where it's like Cleveland is Cleveland. They were just like, yeah, Cole Calhoun, go get him, buddy. And it's been grotesque and ugly at times. Like I went through and watched Brian Rocchio, every defensive play Brian Rocchio made the last month. Um, I was watching this week and watching Cole Calhoun try to like feel the short hop is like, Hey, why are we doing this? Um, so I would guess <laughs> that Kyle Manzardo, who doesn't have to be put on the 40 man until December of 2024, that just based on the way Cleveland behaves, that they would sooner promote Yankenzi Noel, who's already on the 40 man and give him a trial run, even though he hasn't lit the world on fire at AAA this year, that they would just like rather do that than start Kyle Manzardo's service clock. That is just the way Cleveland has tended to operate. So speculating here, it's informed speculation based on their pattern of behavior as an organization. I saw Kyle Manzardo down here in Arizona uh, like two weeks ago. He was, I don't know, rehabbing, I guess, or if they were just like doing intake for some type of thing here in Arizona after they acquired him and they let him get to a couple of complex games or whatever. Um, I would guess not. I would guess that he is not up based on the way Cleveland tends to do things. A bunch of third basemen got mentioned. Uh, I saw Baltimore's Colby Mayo, Tampa's Junior Caminero, uh, Colt Keith, you mentioned from Detroit, and Toronto's Orelvis Martinez. They've suffered a couple of injuries, including to their third baseman, Matt Chapman. So uh, any of those third basemen jump out at you? Yeah, the Toronto situation is especially interesting because they've got a crowded field at the upper levels right now between Orelvis Martinez, Addison Barger, who's been playing kind of all over the place recently, more right field recently, but also second base, shortstop, third base, which is where he's mostly tended to play. Um, and, you know, Davis Schneider, obviously, like, hey, anyone out there should, you know, who, faces David Schneider, feel free to pitch him anywhere but right down the middle, please. It's like a guy who just, you know, was a conscientious David Schneider ob objector who analyzed him and still did not put him on the Blue Jays list. Uh, feel free to like not throw gopher balls to that guy, please. Um, I'd like to look smart. Uh, but yeah, like the Toronto situation is a super crowded field. Obviously, Bo is hurt. I, I suspect Santiago Espinal will just step in wherever they need him to and that they will just ride Davis Schneider's hot hand for as long as they feel they have to. The fact that Mason McCoy and Ernie Clement have been promoted ahead of the guys who we have mentioned, Barger and, and Aurelvis Martinez, perhaps does not bode well for like those other two guys' prospects for uh, immediate promotion. Or Elvis, you know, 
Arelvis is such a weird freaking player. Like the fact that he is hit for power is so bizarre to me. Not because he doesn't have power. He he really, really does. It's just like this guy pulls everything. Like it is such a one note approach. I worry it will be exposed at the big league level. But he has gotten to his power, you know, consistently in the minor leagues. So I'm skeptical about Arelvis. I'm more on Barger, who has some of his own issues. Um, both those guys have do have legit raw power, though. Colt Keith, if he gets promoted, go get him. That guy's going to rake part of why I am, you know, medium on him on the prospect lists uh, is because he can't play defense, but you guys don't have to worry about that. So uh, he is going to rake. He has huge power. He hit one over the auxiliary media box at the futures game. Like they put the, you know, the New York times and all that, you know, ESPN, they get there, they get to be in the main press box for all-star events because there are so many media people there, they put like, you know, the fan graphs types out at, you know, in an auxiliary box somewhere. And for futures game, that was like in the right field bleachers and Colt Keith almost killed like four of us. <laughs> so, um, he's a real one. And then, uh, Kobe Mayo, I don't know because the defensive part of it is also not really there right now. And I haven't projected in right field long-term. Like he's just not that type. He's not an infield athlete for me. Uh, and Cam Monero, Cam Monero will be really interesting because does that team feel like they need a spark? Cam Monero's hand speed is insane. And his swing is kind of long and he really doesn't do well with inner third fastballs. Like he can't get the barrel in there. And so I am, you know, I moved him into the graded tier that I did early in the year, and I'm sort of inclined to leave him there rather than be like, yeah, this is a top five guy. Like, um, even though from a bat speed standpoint, he is definitely that guy because uh, the swing is kind of scary. But if if they feel like, you know, Oslavis Basabe ain't cutting it, um, maybe that's a sneaky guy that they just try to dart throw and say, you know, if this guy is an elite player, then so be it. But, um, and if they promote him, go get him just in case, like you're trying to win the league. So get the guy who might be like a real dude rather than, you know, a, a barger or a, you know, a role player type. Didn't see any second baseman, but three shortstops mentioned more than once. Uh, Jackson holiday at Baltimore. We already talked about, I just don't see that there's any room for him, frankly, on that team, but Agreed. also Colson Montgomery of the White Sox and Jackson Merrill, you mentioned in San Diego, any of these shortstops likely to turn up in the major leagues after the end of this week? Totally agree with you on Jackson holiday. Colson Montgomery. Now that Hahn and Williams are gone, you know, he's not saving anyone's job by coming up. And so you're just going to wait on him service time wise. He also can't play shortstop. And he hasn't played anywhere but shortstop yet. So they need to figure that out. They should get, continue to give him reps at shortstop because, like, you know, he had a back and oblique stuff this year. And maybe that's why he looks god awful there. He's just a giant kid. So he's going to be a third baseman. He might be a first baseman. Uh, and he just hasn't had any reps there yet. So, like, before he's a big leaguer, he he, he needs to, to do that or prove he can play shortstop. Um, but neither of those is happening right now. So, Colson's a no. And then Merrill. Merrill has begun to play some second base, some first base, some left field. That, to me, is they are kicking the tires on promoting him, especially with Cronenworth being hurt now. Um, if they can get in the mix – 
uh, over the next week or so here and feel comfortable with Merrill at one of those or, or you know one or more of those other positions, then yeah, I bet that there's a chance that he he gets shot up to to the big club. Um, you know, it's uh it's so early. Like I I watched every play Jackson Merrill made in left field this month and only one ball hit to him was like even remotely catchable. So there's like no way of evaluating what kind of outfielder he's going to be. I don't think he's going to play shortstop though. Certainly not for the Padres uh, with who's entrenched in front of him. Hasung, uh, Bogarts, Machado, and probably Tatis would all just be better at shortstop than Jackson Merrill is. He's like pretty flawed and slow there. Uh, so I expect him to sort of assume that Jake Cronenworth role over a longer period of time and like yeah it might just make sense to shoehorn him in there the this september because he does rake i think we got six or seven outfielders to look at starting again in baltimore their number three prospect is outfielder heston jerstad at the start of the year i heard a lot of good things about him but it hasn't been so pronounced of late does baltimore need an outfield to come up man that's tough i think I wonder if they would just roll with Kowser again if they felt like their group up there wasn't going to hack it. Kerstad is extremely chase-prone. Hasn't really been an issue with his triple slash line in the minors, but the underlying chase is pretty concerning, like two standard deviations worse than average. Um, I don't know. I think the way, you know, Mullins is your center fielder, like, the way that guy can play defense, he's entrenched there. Santander is as dangerous as he is, and Mountcastle as well. Like those two guys are in the middle of your order. And Austin Hayes is a pretty good year. I don't think there's I don't think there's a Kerstad uh, call up on the on the horizon personally. Um, but if you know there is and power is a thing you need, like he definitely has that. You know, if there are injuries, then then maybe. But I I, I do wonder if they would just roll with Colton Cowser. Um, if that if that were the case, or even Joey Ortiz, if it were someone on the infield, uh, I'm not a big Kowser guy. I have him more as like a fourth outfielder than an impact player. Definitely not like a top twenty uh, prospect. Um, but uh, but you know the playing opportunity for him might be there. Washington outfielder James Wood was, I think, number three on your 2023 preseason list. Uh, Washington certainly not going anywhere. Is this an opportunity for them to see what they've got by bringing him up, letting him have a few swings in September? It might be, yeah. They, um, you know, Wood has struck out enough at Double A that I would I would approach things a little bit more cautiously. And yeah, Wood and like Ellie De La Cruz are in that bucket where it's just like. If you were going to point at the handful of guys who have the physical ability to be, you know, a freakish major league player, it's, you know, it's O'Neill Cruz, it's James Wood, it's Shohei Otani, it's, you know, like you just look at the, the athlete we're talking about and like James Wood is in that phylum where the way he moves at six foot seven is unreal. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that Washington is probably more likely to, to play things kind of slow there. Let that group that's currently at double A, which is just like, if you can go, if you know, change your favorite team to Washington on your MLB TV app and, and watch Harrisburg play here the last several weeks with Cruz and Wood and a bunch of other 
real prospects on that roster. You know, I would I would guess it's uh, pretty unlikely that Wood is up in September. How about Milwaukee outfielder Jackson? Boy, we got a lot of guys named Jackson. Yeah, Jackson Churio. Yeah, that's the new market inefficiency is naming your kid Jackson. Um, Milwaukee also tends to be pretty conservative with the way they approach any of this stuff. I think they are happy enough with what Weimer is doing in center field and what Freilich and, you know, Brian Anderson can kind of do together not to, not to, to do that, but I guess I wouldn't rule that out. And I do think that he would hit for power. He's flawed as well. Um, he is not like a, a, an ironclad prospect by any means. And, uh, like over time, what he will be built like is kind of interesting and sort of up in the air. Um, Everson Pereira too, like it's, you know, these are stockier, thicker in the middle compact guys where what they're going to be built like at 26, 27, I really don't know. Um, with James Wood, you can kind of know, um, but, uh, but yeah, so Churio is a maybe, uh, that's an interesting speculative one because the potential for impact there is so high, but I don't know that it's overwhelmingly likely. Milwaukee protecting their lead in the National League Central, of course, from the Cubs who have outfielder Pete Crow Armstrong raising some eyebrows. He might get called up, but I would not touch him in, in fantasy. So much of the way he is evaluated in prospect circles is because he is an incredible defensive center fielder. There are real offensive issues there that I think at the very least make him likely to experience some big league growing pains. Um, the same is true of uh, Sedan Rafaela in Boston, where both of these guys can really go get it, but they have serious hit tool risk for one reason or another. Um, and I wouldn't worry about them so much in fantasy. And finally, we've mentioned uh, ja uh, Jason Dominguez and Evan Carter, Yankees in Texas, respectively. Any chance we see either of them? I get the impression you like Dominguez's chances of maybe seeing some time. I do kind of, yeah. Like Obviously, I like both those guys as prospects. If you're in an OBP league, then Evan Carter is your guy. Um, if power, speed, well, I guess, you know, Evan Carter is going to steal some bases too. Um, but if, you know, power is more important than, than Dominguez, um, Texas. Yeah. Like I think what Texas has going in center field with Leody Tavares just makes it unlikely Evan Carter will be up this, this September, maybe in a very small role, but what Leody is bringing to the table defensively in center field is just so so good. Uh, the fact that Julio Pablo Martinez and Robbie Grossman and Travis Jankowski are on the roster, like I think you can make a pretty coherent argument that Evan Carter would be an upgrade to any of those three guys right now. Um, and so I, I do think that there's like room for playing time for him, uh, you know, in that last outfield spot opposite of Odalis Garcia. Um, but you know, so much of what Carter brings to the table is like soft skill stuff not real big impact. Um, you know, uh, if Brandon Nimmo is a very valuable fantasy uh, player, 
then like that is the type of player who I think you know Evan Carter is going to become. Uh, if you want more consistent power with like a flawed hit tool, then Jason Dominguez is more of your speed. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. And Eric, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And since you're a prospects guy, we'll do something a little different. Uh, your boons and banes for prospects who are not in the majors yet, but for the 2024 season we're looking at. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are prospects you think look like good value for 2024. Let's start with a batter who could be a boon. Yeah, and especially if we're talking about uh, redraft leagues, I think uh, Curtis Mead with Tampa Bay at some point, um, there's been like some fatigue there. He got off to a slow start and then got hurt. Uh, I still really believe he is going to hit and he is going to hit so much that he is going to be less likely to be subject to some of what Tampa Bay likes to do with platooning. Uh, in a way that impacts guys' playing time. Obviously, like there are some some benefits to what Tampa does because like Josh Lowe is just often facing a pitcher who he is going to succeed against more likely than not. Um, you know, like the way that they put players in position there to succeed helps, I think, elevate those guys. But I just think Curtis Mead is going to hit so much that he's essentially going to be an everyday player and probably someone who. Uh, folks in your league, given the hype around, you know, you and your Cam Monero and some of these other guys, uh, especially like even just in their system, uh, he might be undervalued in, uh, in your league. Um, I think that's true of anyone who plays uh, like physically demanding position, especially the catchers. So like Diego Cartaya did not have a good year. If you're in a dynasty league, any of these catchers who had a swoon, if you feel like buying low on them, you should go do it. MJ Melendez had a terrible year in the middle of the minors. Bo Naylor had a, te- a terrible year in the middle of the minors. I already talked about Patrick Bailey last year. Um, Henry Davis was terrible last year. You don't necessarily have to keep these guys long-term, but if you're in a dynasty league, the bounce back and then you know to speculate on them, so to speak, uh, you know, in a, in a fantasy dynasty sense would make sense to me. Go look at any of the highly ranked catchers who had a disappointing off, uh, offensive season. It just tends to be because catching beats the crap out of you. Like it's just such a physically demanding job that, you know, over time you have these periods where you're not hitting just because you're exhausted and bruised. Uh, and I think that certainly applies to Diego Cartaya more more so than anybody else this year. But I think it's a it's a broad thing to apply to uh, catchers in dynasty leagues. And of course, uh, there's research I know that shows that catchers just develop slower because of the defensive demands as well. Who's a pitcher who could be a boon? Man, I you know Hurston Waldrip in the Braves system, who they just drafted um, out of Florida. They've already promoted him to Double A. The Braves do not mess around. The Braves are are going. And, you know, if they think you have a chance to be good, you know, we were talking about this earlier with the teams who have promoted guys. And uh, I, you know, my tone was more one of skepticism and and uh, perhaps conservatism around how quickly these guys should be promoted. Michael Harris is awesome. <laughs> Michael Harris is really awesome. 
And, um, you know, the Braves really do not mess around. And it's part of the reason that their farm system, when you just look at their prospects, it's like this farm system sucks. And it's like, yeah, because they're all in the big leagues. All their young players are good and in the big leagues. So they're like really good at this clearly, but their farm system ranking is bad. Um, so Hurston Waldrop is, you know, their first round pick. He's got a dynamic splitter. It, it wouldn't surprise me if they deploy him as a weapon in the playoffs this year. Uh, but for sure, whatever role he ends up in, there's definitely a release relief risk there. Uh, but the Braves tend to find a way to get the most out of those guys. Even if it is like AJ Smith Scheuer this year, there's going to be playing time. Like he's going to strike guys out. It might be in a long relief capacity. It might be, you know, who knows what it would be. But uh, I think Hurston Waldrop is, is a guy who, you know, I think I'm the only one who has him on my my top 100 right now, and so I'm definitely positioned higher than the rest of the industry on that guy. Um, and also think he'll be up very, very quickly. The other guys for whom that's true are Ty Madden with Detroit, Takoa Roby with St. Louis, who is, uh, they acquired at the trade deadline, uh, Jordan Wicks with the Cubs, who was just promoted to the big leagues, and David Festa with the Twins. Those are all guys who I have um, 2024 ETAs on, except for Roby, whose upside I think is just you know big enough that if he looks healthy next spring, he should be in the mix. Like he'll kick down the door. His stuff is so good. Those are just like basically fully baked mid rotation starters who are in like the middle of my top 100 list because of proximity and and probability. Let's go to your Baines. These are prospects you think will be overestimated in 2024 fantasy drafts. Who's a batter who could be a Bane? Yeah, Colton Kowser. Like the idea that Colton Kowser, and again, like Jim Callis, I love him. He sends me a Christmas card every year. He's my friend and mentor. Um, the idea that Colton Kowser is like four spots from where Ellie De La Cruz was at the beginning of the season like that just does not track for me now we've had some big league time to you know and maybe colton Kowser people have adjusted their expectations but like the idea that he was the 12th best prospect in baseball or whatever um and was like constantly trending in you know our website's minor league player search and that i'm getting like you know comments and emails that are you know inf- you know incendiary about like my opinion of this guy were just like buck wild to me. So uh, yeah, Colton Kowser is one where I was just like I don't get it. Uh, Miguel Vargas was another one where I was just like yeah, this guy seems fine. He's got really good feel for the barrel and is like not explosive at all. And you're gonna ask this guy to like be a below average third baseman, and he's not really gonna hit for any power and like this guy's supposed to be great. Like definitely not. Um, anyone who has a very high defensive grade on our site, especially if it's at a premium defensive position. And so that is like Evan Carter, Rafaela, Pete Crow Armstrong. They are going to be overvalued. Um, Drew Jones. If you're in a dynasty league, do not touch that guy right now. If you buy baseball cards, sell your Drew Jones cards now. Things have looked pretty rough there early on. There is a lot that needs to happen for Drew Jones to be good. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of off of – not off of those guys like as prospects, but as fantasy baseball players, yeah, no way. Like part of what I care about so much is premium defensive positions 
and your ability to play those positions very, very well, because that's who plays major league baseball is like Travis Jankowski gets to keep playing because he can play defense really well. You know, Bradley Zimmer gets chance after chance because he can actually play center field, you know? Um, and so uh, that's just not a fantasy thing that anyone should care about. So be skeptical of anyone who's rated highly. And finally, who's a pitcher who could be a Bane? Any pitcher. <laughs> like, you know, you were the only publication that had Mason Miller on the top 100. I don't know if that's true. And even doing it was like, this guy's going to get hurt again. I just know it. I just know he's going to get hurt again. And then he did. And his stuff is so vicious, but he just gets hurt all the time. And this is true of so many of the pitchers. And so like, I would only take opportunistic bets on pitching in a fantasy environment at all. Don't go out of your way to draft Luis Patino or AJ Puck or Forrest Whitley, or, you know, the list is so long. Sixto Sanchez, Edward Cabrera has had, you know, a good season. And that guy is as likely to break tomorrow as, as anybody else. So like, you know, just be skeptical of pitching generally, and you're going to be doing fine in, in the fantasy, in the fantasy space. Eric Longhagen's Boons, Curtis Mead of Tampa, Diego Cartaya of Los Angeles, and any minor league catchers who've had unexpected swoons in the minors, his pitcher Boons, Hurston Waldrop of Atlanta, Ty Madden of Detroit, Takoa Robert of Detroit, and Jordan Hicks of the Cubs, David Festa of Minnesota, lots there. Let's go to your Baines, uh, Colton Kowser of Baltimore, Drew Jones of Arizona, and other players who are defense first type of prospects, and yeah. pitcher Baines, any of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mason Miller in particular, but it's injury risk for sure. Uh, this has been great. Eric, tell us where we can keep up with your work. Just go to fangraphs.com. I uh, wrote a book that was published in 2020 with Kylie McDaniel of ESPN called Future Value. It's like a look at contemporary baseball scouting processes. Uh, so you can check that out. But otherwise, all of my stuff is just at fangraphs.com. Well, Eric, this was really very, very interesting. I'm so grateful that you could take the time and uh, appreciate it. And we'll see you in Arizona. Thank you so much for having me. I love long form podcasts like this and uh, have you know listened to yours. And thank you so much for having me on. I just love what the ability to go as deep as we can on any individual topic in a setting like this affords. Uh, and so thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to seeing you out here in the desert when it's not 109. <laughs> Eric Longenhagen is lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Frequent Flyer and my extra innings are on the way. But first... One last reminder of all the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The Baseball HQ scouting team has ongoing comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can make or break a fantasy season, especially these days. In the Baseball HQ Prospects podcast, The Eyes Have It this week, co-hosts Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey are cruising through the dog days. 
And in our daily call-ups report, the Baseball HQ scouting team covers all the latest call-ups to the big leagues. And it's been a bumper crop for September, including a couple of Yankees. Outfielder Jason Dominguez and catcher Austin Wells, Mets third baseman Ronnie Mauricio, Cubs outfielder Alexander Canario, Kansas City third baseman Nick Lofton, and Boston outfielder Sedan Raffaella. Ray and I talked about him last week. It's comprehensive prospect coverage, and it's another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Now, I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, long shot suggestions in the Speculator column, player injury analysis in the Big Hurt and Team Injury Reports, gaming strategy analysis for Roto, Points Leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections. They're updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content, plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have my extra innings comment, and leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Yankees outfield call-up, Jason Dominguez is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. The Martian is about to land in Space City, exclaimed MLB.com's Brian Hoke on August 30th after rocketing up the prospect rankings. The 5'9", 190-pound, 20-year-old New York Yankees outfielder, Jason Dominguez, drew comparisons to Bo Jackson, Mickey Mantle, and Mike Trout before signing for $5.1 million on the Dominican Republic, where he earned the nickname The Martian because of his otherworldly tools, explained Hoke. Furthermore, MLB.com's Matt Kelly on August 30th called Dominguez's anticipated call-up on September 1st one of the most anticipated debuts in Major League Baseball history, referring to Dominguez as one of the most hyped international prospects in recent memory. A team source confirmed that Dominguez will be called up on Friday, September 1st, according to the Athletics' Chris Kirshner and Keith Law on August 30th. However, please keep in mind that Dominguez has only played nine games at AAA, and as Keith Law further pointed out, he took a while to adjust to AA pitching this year, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him scuffle in the big leagues, not just this September, but even to start next year, Law said. That's why the Martian, 20-year-old New York Yankees otherworldly outfielder Jason Dominguez, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot or possible moonshot who may be worth a flyer if somehow he's still available in your league. Our own Jeremy Deloney also noted Dominguez's swing and miss tendencies as August 27th Miners column at BaseballHQ.com. Digging deeper, 
Dominguez's career 70% contact rate in the minors is reflective of his high propensity for strikeouts, where our research at BaseballHQ.com demonstrates the contact rates of 70% or less often correlate to batting averages of 241 or less at the major league level when used as a leading indicator of player performance. Even so, Dominguez has all the physical and raw tools you need, coupled with the DNA to control a strike zone, Yankees manager Aaron Boone said in a September 1st New York Post article by Greg Joyce. The switching Dominguez uses in the open upright strands from both sides of the plate to generate plus-plus bat speeds that aid in generating raw plus-plus power, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 minor league baseball analyst. He has an all-world tool shed with double-plus raw tools across the board, according to Baseball HQ's Chris Blessing is 2020 New York Yankees organization report, which also accurately predicted, three years ago, that Dominguez was still at least three years away from his debut in terms of development path. Wow, nailed it, three years exactly. So take cover, the Marshes landing in Space City, Houston, this weekend to annihilate fastballs. Protect yourself by going directly to your basement to add 20-year-old New York Yankees otherworldly outfielder Jason Dominguez as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week... I'd like you to listen to How It's Gone for Carlos Santana. That song, of course, is Oye Como Va by the great guitarist Carlos Santana. The phrase in Spanish means, listen how it goes. And so I'd like you to listen to how it has gone for another Carlos Santana, the first baseman, who is 37 years old and aging like fine wine. Santana is one of those guys who's almost always undervalued in fantasy, a boring veteran of the kind that fantasy superstar Dave Potts says he relies on to keep winning, year after year of 600-plus plate appearances, 20-plus home runs, 80-plus RBIs, a 360 or higher on-base percentage, 400-plus slugging percentages, and regular mid-teens 5x5 value. Santana's trademarks have been hard contact and walks. In all of his 14 seasons, he's never had a hard contact index under 100. And when you scan his career stats on his Baseball HQ player link page, you see a lot of 120s and 1-teens. You also see 100-plus power indexes in every year but the pandemic season and the season after. This year, his PX is 105, again at age 37. And the walks. 15% walk rate for his career, never had a season in single digits. Eat your heart out, Kevin Euclid. The Greek god of walks has a career walk rate of 12%, three full points shy of Santana's, and Euclid had a 7% rate in 2013, single digits, when he was a venerable geezer of 34 years old. Since Carlos Santana started his career in 2010, he has 1,202 walks. You know how many other players have more than 1,200 walks from 2010 to this year? One. Joey Votto is the active career walks leader with 1,224 walks since 2010. And by the way, you know who's third in walks since 2010? Andrew McCutcheon. And he has 1,001. 
He's also the only other player with 1,000 walks in the entire period. Votto also leads in walk rate over the span at 16.4%. We're talking players with 5,000 or more plate appearances. Jose Bautista is second, a bit surprising for me, at 15.6%. Carlos Santana, third, at 14.9%, just ahead of Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. And among all those top 10 walk rates, Santana has the lowest strikeout rate, just 16.5%. You take all the waters on the walks and walk rate leaderboards, Carlos Santana is the only one who has an I-ratio of greater than 0.9 walks per strikeout. Considering his plate patience and hard-hit proclivity, it's kind of odd that Santana's batting averages haven't been all that great. His highest batting average in a season was 281 back in 2019. The culprit is a lot of surprisingly low hit rates. He has a 26% hit rate for his career, just one season at 30%, that was 2013, and four at 28 or 29 percent. He has a 539 batting average on his hard hit balls for his career. Just for one example, Mike Trout has a 619 batting average, 80 points higher. Is Santana just subject to bad luck? Well, after 8,000 plate appearances, probably not. More than anything, though, the crowning achievement of Carlos Santana's career is just being there. He's played over 1,900 games in those 14 seasons, an average of 136 games per season. He has 8,100 plate appearances, about 580 for every year in the big leagues. By comparison, Trout has averaged 500 plate appearances per season. That's 80 less. Bryce Harper, about 530. And in all that time, Santana has been on the IL just three times. Two concussions and last year some bursitis in one of his ankles. Bursitis? Talk about old guy problems. Santana's grand total of days on the injured list? 32 in 14 years. By the end of this season, Santana will be very close to 1,000 runs, probably over 1,000 RBIs, and if he can manage four more taters, he'll be right at 300 for his career. Only two other players can top those marks since 2010, Paul Goldschmidt and Freddie Freeman. Now, I'm not saying that Carlos Santana is really all that comparable to guys like Joey Votto and Jose Bautista, Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, Paul Goldsmith, Freddie Freeman. All those guys are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, I'm not sure about Bautista, although his bat flip might make it. Carlos Santana, in all likelihood, won't be in the Hall of Fame. But you know what? When you listen to how it goes, it's important that we can even mention the name of Carlos Santana with those other guys. And the reason... It was because Carlos Santana showed up for work every day, and he did his job with uncommon excellence. Oye como va, indeed. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio pretty much every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 1st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 33 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday Full Edition, Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. Eric is one of the go-to guys for prospect analysis, and it was clear from our talk how much he loves his work and thinks about it. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our news analyst was Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com, 
and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a columnist at The Athletic. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have more top-notch guest experts, plus all the usual great stuff, our news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Gene McCaffrey on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.